0: Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. What if we start off today by punching some lines? For example, election week. Little kid asks his dad, Dad, what's the difference between the two political parties? That's easy, son. One political party, they're for the common man. They're the people, they're the political group for the common man. The other political party, they're only for special interest groups. Dad, which one's which? Well, that's not as easy to tell. Joke number one. How about this? Republicans are red, Democrats are blue, and neither one cares about you. Punching lines, punching lines. Fighting time, fighting time. There's a guy, he's in a hot air balloon. He's coming down closer and closer and closer. A lady working in her garden. She looks up, there he is. Not too high off the ground. And he says, Ma'am, I need some help. I'm late for a meeting and I don't know where I am or where I'm going. Can you help me? She says, I can help you. She gets out her phone, types in the phone, looks up at him, looks at the phone. She says, You're at 49 latitude, 39 longitude, 25 feet altitude. And he says, You must be a Democrat. Why would you say that? He said, Because although what you told me is factually true, it doesn't help me one bit, and I'm still just as bad off as I was when I started. And she said, you must be a Republican. Well, why would you say that? She said, you can't keep your commitment, you're being held up by hot air, and it's all my fault. I got more. Want to punch both sides, though, right? both sides. What about this? What about getting a little bit more serious? Got this uh, political news report. Let me read it. It's from an article written by Brian Blakeman. I don't know who that is, and neither do you. After the latest presidential election, this is the article written. Allegations of voter fraud, intimidation, And a backroom deal. Here's the article. Democrats resented the federal government's policies and saw that those policies as a theft of their rightful dominance in the political and economic hierarchy. So in an attempt to gain back power, they used intimidation and violence to disenfranchise black voters. Both the presidential candidates seemed to be solid, sensible, and seemingly above reproach. But after the election, there was some discrepancies in the vote. And the Democrats accused the Republicans of ballot box stuffing. One Democrat called for a peaceful army of 100,000 men to march on the Capitol unless the Democratic candidate was declared the winner. With fears of violence and a deadlock between a Democratic-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate, Congress didn't know how to find the solution. That's the article about the election of 1876. 1876 between Ruther B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Man, if politics hasn't changed in a hundred years, then is there any hope at all for us? I'm here to tell you there is. The hope is found in Jesus Christ. And it's not just found in Jesus Christ on how to come to Jesus Christ, how to be in Christ, how to be saved from your sins. The hope is is found in how he explains and changes us to act like Jesus Christ. I think a lot of times as we're punching lines and we're punching down, I think a lot of times we forget that that is not how Jesus acted. Today, we can take comfort in the fact that the scripture that Jesus gives us, which explains for us how to be like him, can actually bring about the change that we are desiring, even in our political system. And it's going to start in our church. It's going to start with you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help right now. We ask for your help for our nation, which seems to be so divided And Lord, we recognize that this isn't anything new that you haven't seen before, but we ask for you to intervene. Lord, we ask for you to intervene how you have always intervened, by sending your people to be the change agents of your kingdom. And so what we're really asking for, Lord, is for you to change us. And we ask, God, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to speak and change us through the scripture we're going to read today. Use that scripture as a tool to cut away any of our pride and any of our sinful thinking and any of our blindness. Lord, open our eyes to how you ask us to be in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14 today. Romans chapter 14, we're, we're doing part two of a three or four part sermon series on being peacemakers in a world of politics. We started this sermon series two weeks ago in Romans chapter 12. Today we're going to be in Romans 14, part two. And in this passage, Paul is giving instructions for the Christians in a church on how to be in Christ and how to be Christian. A lot of times we get the, those two separated. We think about how we can come to be saved and what we have to do to be in Christ, but we forget after we get in Christ, we're supposed to continually be changed to be more like Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 4 is explaining how we can be like Christ, and he was talking to a church that was strangely divided, A division that we probably wouldn't recognize very well today, but in his day, it was recognized. Uh, This is going to be part one and part two uh, of a two-part sermon, uh, because I can't get through all of Romans 14 today. I want to, but I can't. I'm going to read and begin in Romans 14, and then we'll take a break and we'll start talking about it. But I bet we only get through one point of Romans 14. Here's how it starts. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat anything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant to his own master? He stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than the another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. They were having a problem in the church, and both problems on the divide between them both of them belong to the Lord. Both of them gave thanks to the Lord. But Paul makes a judgment call. He says one of those people had a weaker faith than the other, and one of them had a stronger faith than the other on this divide. And look what he asked for the stronger faith Christian. Now, I know what you're thinking, because this isn't... We all think we're strong in our faith. We all think we're right. We all think we have right beliefs and right thinking. Well, if that is you... You have a greater responsibility. See, parents take care of their children. Those who are in a position of stronger or a position of strength, they are supposed to and are called to take care of those who are in a position of weakness or who are weaker. And the very first command out of Romans chapter 14 is those who are strong should take care of and accept those who are weak. Welcome them into your table. Welcome them into your family. Welcome them into your social group. Love on them. Because you're the stronger Christian. Your faith is stronger. The very first command is accept them. Welcome them. Well, we have to ask them questions about that. Where did the strong and weak, where did that come from? Where did that come about? See, they both grew up in very, very different life circumstances. This is what led to the difference. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an explanation. It's most likely between Jewish Christians who came to the faith and Gentile Christians that came to the faith. And it's interesting to me that Paul says the Jewish Christian who had more rules... Were the ones with weaker faith. Here's where they came from. We got to ask the question, where did they come from? What is their life circumstances? We have to get curious or we start judging. They were judging. It was, it was crazy. The person who didn't eat everything, abstained, had special days. They were looking at the other person saying, how in the world could they be like that? Why in the world would they think that way? Why would they act that way? Clearly, they're not of God. This person over here was saying they are so stupid that they can't get it and get with the program and think correctly. Why in the world do they do that? One was judging the other and the other was condemning the other. We have to ask the question, why? What's going on? It's it's a little bit of a long story, but I want to explain it. When the people of God, the Jewish people, when they were exiled to Babylon, so God says, you're being exiled because you didn't keep my Sabbaths. And they get to Babylon, the people of God, the Jews, and they had a lot going for them that separated them from other nations. They had a sacrificial system that they had to do every day. The priests did it. They supported those priests with tithes. They came to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals. They had dietary laws that were pretty strict. Have you ever heard of kosher food? They had the Torah, the law of Moses, that they would spend time memorizing and they knew. And then they had the Sabbath days. And God took them into exile into Babylon. While in Babylon, they did not have the sacrificial system, they had no altar. They're in a bind. This is how they are the people of God. This is how God rolls back their sin. This is how God makes them clean to come into his presence. See, the law of Moses was really incredible. One part of the law that made it so special is because it separated God's people from the rest of the world. And we knew who God's people were because their laws were different. But another good thing about the law of Moses was it told them they had to be clean to go into the presence of a holy God. And it explained how they were to get clean. One was the sacrificial system that God gave them. He said, I'm going to give you the sacrifice. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And then you can come into my presence clean. When they were in Babylon, they didn't have the sacrificial system. So the priests got together. The rabbis got together. And they said, we really feel like because of God's grace, if you practice the dietary laws and you keep the Sabbaths and you memorize the Torah, it will be like you're spiritually keeping the sacrificial laws that we can no longer do. And so they started planting synagogues, places of schooling, where children were learned and taught how to read so they could memorize the Torah. And they were really specific about which foods they could eat or not eat. If you've ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den, he was part of that captivity. He was taken to Babylon. And as a young man, he was brought up in the king's court. And Daniel and his friends, they made a pact not to offend God with the food they eat. And he was hailed as a hero of the faith because he abstained from those foods that were not kosher and he kept the dietary laws. The priest, if you keep the dietary laws, you keep the Sabbath, so you memorize the Torah, it's like you're doing the sacrificial system. And they, they became very, 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 they were already important, but now they're really important. This is the only way you can be clean to get into God's presence. And when Israel was released to go back to Jerusalem and they were allowed to rebuild the temple and they could restart their sacrificial system, the dietary laws and keeping the Sabbath and uh, memorizing the Torah, that did not decrease in importance. The one clear boundary between the Jewish people of God and the rest of the Gentile world, it was so clear. What they could and couldn't eat the Sabbath, and the memorization of the Torah, and that stayed constant all the way until the time of Jesus Christ. And they recognized, for them to get clean, they had to continue to do the diet law, the Sabbath, and memorize the Torah. That's how they came into God's presence. Jesus comes along, and He fulfills the law completely. He dies on the cross in place of us for our sins. After three days, he's raised from the dead, and he says he makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. Can you imagine if Jesus didn't fulfill all the laws in the Old Testament completely or righteously? Can you imagine if he just did like 99% of them and he left maybe one or two for us to do? Can you imagine the burden that would be on our shoulders? We would be clean except for these two laws that we have to keep. And not only do we have to keep them, but we have to keep them perfectly. We can never fail at keeping these laws or otherwise we cannot go into God's presence and be clean. Can you imagine if Jesus, I heard one preacher say, can you imagine if Jesus left two, three, maybe just one for us to do? Imagine how concerned we would be with that law and making sure we got it just right. In the church at Rome, there were Jewish Christians who grew up very differently They practiced the dietary laws, they practiced the Sabbaths, they practiced memorizing the Torah, and that's how their dad did it, and that's how their grandpa did it, and that's how their great-grandpa did it, and that was the tradition that was handed down to them, and this is how they know they are clean with the Lord, and then Jesus shows up, and they fall in love with Jesus. They say, oh, we love it. We really believe that he is the Messiah, the Savior sent from God to rescue us. We love Jesus. And we're going to do Jesus plus what we've always known. And we're going to let Jesus cleanse us and we're going to trust him and we're just going to make sure. And we're going to keep some laws too. And Paul says, Jesus plus is a weaker faith. They don't quite understand the implications of Christ's sacrifice. That he completed and kept all the laws perfectly. He was perfectly righteous in keeping the laws. And now, because of his sacrifice, he is what makes us clean. Not what we do keeping the laws. In fact, there's a passage of scripture, Paul writes to Titus, who is... This, Discussing the same thing, he says it this way. I just wanted to put this out while I had it on my mind. Jesus saved us, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We become heirs. We're joined the family of God because of his grace, because of what Jesus does. And we just trust him with that. And any time we say Jesus plus, it becomes a weaker type of faith. Paul didn't say they weren't saved. He didn't say they weren't good people. And he didn't say they were dumb. But he did make a judgment call on them. But it's not the same judgment call as those who are strong. The Gentiles grew up in a totally different world. They didn't have the traditions. They didn't have the law of Moses. They never worried about what they ate, and they didn't keep the Sabbaths. But when they met Jesus, they fell in love with him, and they were so thankful. They recognized that they were sinners and needed a Savior, and they were so thankful that Jesus cleansed them of all their sins, and they trusted Jesus completely. And then they still sinned. Because they looked at their brothers and sisters in faith and they said, you guys are so stupid. That's not how the strong is supposed to take care of the weak. Imagine if Jesus had come to earth and he pointed out the people who had sinned and who didn't get things right because they were stupid in their faith. Jesus didn't come to earth like that. Jesus, the strongest, He came to earth and He accepted those who were weaker than Him into His family at His table. And He loved them. And He loved those who were known to be sinners and He loved those who thought they were righteous. And He brought them to His table and He loved them. He who is strong made Himself weak. So that he could love. And Paul says, hey, if you're the strong Christian, you have to go love like Jesus loved. You have to accept those with weaker faith. Those who are still working on it, those who are still a little immature, if you think you have the mature faith, then you have to go accept them. And you can't argue about things. you got to love them. Now, we're going to read, and we're going to continue on in Romans 14, and, and next week we're going to talk about what it means to stand up for what is right and to say the right thing and, and do so with gentleness and respect, but Paul begins with disputable matters, matters that don't mean too much, matters that are not essential for your faith. He says, those we're not going to argue about, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. He calls those who are strong in faith to take on the mindset of God. If God accepts those who are weaker in faith into the kingdom, then so, so should they. And he also calls the weaker in faith. If God accepts them, then they too have to accept those who are strong in faith. He calls them to take on the mindset of God. Do you see how this would help bring peace in a church if those who were strong in faith would accept those who were less mature in their faith into their family in a loving way instead of holding them in contempt? I don't know, does this this play out any Does this play out any in our marriages or any in our workplace or maybe in our political system? I mean, how would Paul tell us to act if you had two people on either side of the the political system and one is thinking, how could they possibly believe that? How could they possibly do that? They must be evil. And the other person on the other side says, I don't understand how they could possibly do that. What in the world are they thinking? They must be stupid. What happens if Christ moves in through you and through your actions where you invite them and love on them? Even though they disagree with you, even though you disagree with them, and even though you don't understand why they act and think the way they do, what if you ask the question: Where did you come from? How did you grow up? What's different about your upbringing that makes you think this way? Because maybe your daddy did it, maybe your granddaddy did it, maybe great, maybe it's been passed down, and maybe that's the way you think the way you do, and I'm going to love you anyway. Doesn't this passage teach us, isn't this a principle that's going to apply anything, that we can love people even if we disagree with them? Now let me ask you this. Does your politician act that way? Or is your politician calling names and talking about the apocalypse? It's the end of the world if you elect that person. It's the end of the world if you elect that person. Listen, if they're talking about the apocalypse and they're calling names, they're probably not your savior. Your political party is not your savior. The politics of this world hasn't changed in 100 years unless Christians get involved and they show people how to love. The dividing line between a Jewish person and the Gentile world was so clear. Dietary laws, Sabbaths, and memorization of the Torah. What is the dividing line of Christians that makes it really clear who we are compared to the entire world? What is the one thing that separates us from anyone else? Jesus tells us I give you a new command love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know you are my disciples if you love. Doesn't what Paul tells the Roman church take on a whole new meaning when he says, accept those with a weaker faith without arguing about it, just love them? What if we did that in our political realm? What if we started from a place of love, recognizing that the person over there that we don't understand and we can't imagine why they would think that way, and they must be evil, they must be stupid, what if we, what if we imagine them the way God sees them, as a child of God, a human being created in his image, and we're supposed to help them learn to know who Christ is, Because our politics are not of this world. Our kingdom is not of this world. And our king, our savior, is not of this world. But he says we need to live like we're living in his kingdom in this world. Wouldn't it it change things? i got to tell you, the hope I have and the comfort I have and the change that I have that I know is possible, it's going to happen through the church as we love like christ we're going to accept those who are different from us and we're going to love on them and we're going to ask them questions and they're going to figure out they really do care about me and then they're going to hear what we say about how jesus can make a difference in their life too and we're going to attend to them we're going to accompany them in love now, this, this can work out different ways in the church, and I think it can work out different ways in our political system. I, I just want to point out how it might work out in our church in case it ever happens. You know, sometimes we get divisions in church. Can you imagine, and there was a time, I went to, I went to a, a wedding yesterday, and it was beautiful, but it was so windy. It was outdoors, but it was perfect weather except for the wind. You know, there were a couple of places to sit. They made it, they made it look like a church outside. And there was a couple of seats that started toppling over. But you know the seats that didn't topple over? They were called pews. The first six rows for wedding guests to sit in were pews. Anybody remember what a pew is? Now, I know you might find this hard to believe, but the people who came in to sit at the wedding, they avoided the pews and sat in the chairs behind the pews. Why do you think that is? Because pews are not comfortable. You know, there was an argument in this church and not a big argument and not a big division when this building was built and they decided to put in cushioned chairs instead of pews. Now it wasn't a big argument. It wasn't a big division. But can't you imagine some people thinking, what are they thinking? They really must be evil if they enjoy sitting in a pew more than they enjoy sitting in a cushioned seat. So in the church, when these divisions come up, we have to start thinking about how we would act like Christ. And I love this, I love this, uh, this uh, pattern that Michael Patton draws to help us come to conclusions about the things that we are supposed to argue about, the things that we are supposed to stand firm on. And he he draws this diagram where he says, you know, if it's essential to faith, essential to your salvation, we really need to talk about that. And we need, to, we need to have discussion about it. Now, we do it with gentleness and respect, but we really need to talk about it. In fact, there's a saying that gets quoted, and one of the pleas of the Restoration Movement, one of the pleas of the Church Christ Christian Movement was in essentials, we need unity. And in non-essentials, we need liberty. Remember the person who eats some things but doesn't eat others? We give them liberty. Let them do that. It honors God if they want to do that. Remember the person who eats everything? We let them do that because it's not essential to salvation because what we eat doesn't make make us clean. Jesus makes us clean. So he says there's essentials in salvation and then you have to kind of move out from there. There's essentials in historical orthodoxy. What I mean by that, historical orthodoxy is where we get these, these teachings about what the Bible means that has been used and passed down for 2,000 years or almost 2,000 years about Christianity. And these are beliefs that we need to have that really go with Christianity. So in historical orthodoxy, for example, we would need to uh, think about, I I have a list of some things to think about. You know, essential for salvation, we can go back there. You know, Jesus, we have to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. That's an essential Part of our salvation. If we don't start there, we we can't go anywhere else. That's essential. We need to talk about that. We need to discuss it. And if somebody says they don't believe that, they're not in the faith. And they're in danger. We start moving out historical orthodoxy. this um, This is like the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But historically from about 100 AD, they started using that word. Because God reveals himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. And then we move out, um, historical orthodoxy says Jesus was fully God and fully man. They had a big convention about that, the early church did, to talk about how Jesus was human and he was God. But it's not as clear, so we had to explain it. And then we move out to uh, what's called traditional orthodoxy. This is where we say stuff like, you know, Scripture is God's word to us, and it is the ultimate and final authority on all matters of faith. But you see how if you don't necessarily believe Scripture is authority on all matters of faith, maybe you could still get to heaven because your essential belief is in Christ. I think we should still talk about this. I think we should still teach this. And I think it's dangerous to not think the Bible is your authority in all matters of faith and practice. I think that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, I would call it heresy. I love how the Eastern Orthodox Church says heresy. Heresy is a teaching that if followed may lead you out of Christ. But they're not saying you're out of Christ. They're saying it may lead you there. And then we have what's called uh, (laughs) denominational orthodoxy. Believe it or not, denominations are different. Now, we are uh, undenominational, not non denominational, undenominational. Because there was a group of pastors about 200 years ago, and they said, we don't like the way our denomination is doing in church. We think we ought to go back to what the Bible says. In fact, we ought to go back to what the first century church looked like and how they taught the ideal church should be. And out of that discussion sprang, and they said, let's not do, let's not do um, denominations. Out of that discussion and out of, that prayer, out of those prayer meetings sprang the Church of Christ Christian churches. And we're trying to restore what the first century church did correctly. And then there is important but not essential. All right, now we're, getting, we're kind of getting boring. I'll, I'll go. This is important but not essential. That's stuff like uh, creation debate, whether Job and Jonah are historical accounts, end-time schemes out of Revelation, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, which translation of the Bible to use. And if you're having arguments about which translation of the Bible to use, stop. One person uses the KJV only. Another person uses any translation. Both of them are accepted by God. See how Romans fits? And then we have something uh, which is called pure speculation. That's the outer one. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? The problem is with us Christians is sometimes we argue about these things and we forget to go back to what's how how does this play out politically? Well, if you have a politician that is calling for the apocalypse if you vote one way and calling names of their political opponent on the other side, we need to ask the question, what is your platform and how do you intend to fix it? And what is your plans to bring everybody together so that we can move forward in peace, so that we can have some productivity. And it can't just be, vote for me and I'm going to fix it. Or it could be that none of the politicians are our savior and politics are going to continue on like they have been for 100 years unless we stand up and love like Jesus loved discuss with gentleness and respect only essentials to move people to salvation we hope you have enjoyed this message if you need someone to pray with you talk to or maybe you just want more information about our church be sure to fill out a connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step thanks again for joining and we will see you back here next time